Wednesday morning when I got a text from Troy that said he was COVID positive. We went into high gear to start studying and prepare for this morning. But the good news is, Troy is doing much better. He was sick for about a day and a half, so he is recovering easily and quickly, but continue to pray for them and the family. But also, it's easy to come to prepare a sermon because the way we do preaching is to work through an entire book, entire section of Scripture at a time. So we are moving into chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians this morning. So the past couple weeks, we have been in this book that Paul has written to the small church, the new church of Thessalonica. And so he writes to them this morning. So if you have your Bible, we'll be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 this morning. And so earlier this year, an article in the New York Times ran this way. It says, Can Spiritual Directors Help? Subtitle, Non-Denominational Spiritual Companions Offer to Connect Clients to the Divine in Their Everyday Life. So if you're paying attention to our culture, over the past few years we've seen an explosion and a number of spiritual advisors or spiritual companions, self-help gurus and life coaches. Just like you have a coach in softball or in uh, the nutrition world, you can now have a coach for your life. And so there's many reasons for this, and not one of them being that every human has a desire for self-improvement, to connect with some higher or spiritual side of life, and to deal with the stress and anxiety of life. And these are good impulses put into our hearts by God himself. But life coaches and spiritual directors and they often try to help people identify personal or professional goals, find motivation within themselves, overcome obstacles, connect with the divine, whatever you may call that, and to get to those goals that are laid out by yourself in the strength of your own power. And we won't argue the merits or the substance or the benefits or the worth of these things or these people this morning, but let's just say this has become a highly popular and lucrative industry. And we need to recognize this, though, that these life coaches and spiritual gurus are not new. It's not just the 21st century that these have exploded. Even in the first century, when Paul is writing, these people are there. The first century has its own version of spiritual directors, spiritual companions, life coaches, and and self-help gurus. In Thessalonica, like other cities in the Roman Empire, there's a blossoming influence of new religions, cults, and philosophic systems. And so there's not a lot of entertainment back in those days. There's no Netflix, there's no TV, there's no sports other than like the Colosseum or the Gladiator Games or the Olympics. There are a few plays. But to be entertained, you would go and to listen to hour-long lectures from philosophers and teachers. Sounds like a riveting time, right? And so many of these new traditions, these new religions, these new philosophic systems, people never heard of. And so East and West are colliding within the Roman Empire, and there's this proliferation of new teachings. And there's a great movement of these new, itinerant, vagrant teachers spreading their good news to the Roman Empire. One commentator put it like this, Holy men of all creeds and countries, popular philosophers, magicians, astrologers, Crackpots and cranks, the sincere and the spurious, the righteous and the rogues, the swindlers and the saints, all converge to jostle and grab the attention of the crowds. That line, I think, could be well written today. If you were to go online, you see this everywhere. Popular teachings and philosophies and crackpots and rogues and swindlers all converge with the saints and the serious and the sincere. 
Some of these directors will teach from biblical or spiritual principles. Others will pull from Buddhist or Hindu or pagan influences. Some have pure motives that really want to help people. And some are really hucksters, swindlers, and con men. And in this latter group, their teachings always lacked substance. They never brought any positive result. One commentator back in the first century says this. He says, these crackpots, these uh, swindlers have no desire to benefit their listeners. In fact, they corrupt them. It is like a physician, instead of curing their patients, entertains them. So these false philosophers, these false teachers, were only out for their own fame, their sensual gratification, and of course, money. And so I googled uh, life coaches Chattanooga and found out life coaching is very lucrative. And so one certain individual who's just four miles from here if you meet with him, he'll, it'll set you back two to $300 an hour. I'm in the wrong business, I think. So this life coaching has become a booming business. And while some, I think, are really out to help people, many are only in it for what they can get out of it themselves. These teachers will abuse people for their personal benefit. Instead of seeking the good and the growth of others, they will result to all sorts of gimmickry, Flattery to lure people in with the promise of great life change. They'll charge an exorbitant fee, promote their own brand, sell their own books, often sexually manipulate their clients, and then leave town without helping anybody. This is the world Paul inhabits. Paul is also seen as this newfangled traveling philosopher who's going to share his good news with others. And so Paul, in Thessalonians and in other places, always has to make a defense for his ministry. It's this background of gimmickry and flattery that Paul has to stand up and say, No, I'm not like them. I'm not in it for personal gain. I'm not in it for myself. And in chapter 2 here, we'll see Paul describe and defend his ministry in a way that he doesn't do in his other letters. Uh, John Stott will observe, says, perhaps more than anywhere else in his letters, Paul will disclose his mind, express his emotions, and bear his soul. Paul, in this chapter, will lay out his heart and his soul for his ministry. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to explore Paul's uh, reasoning here. We're going to see Paul deny some things and affirm some things. So today, in verses 1 through 6, he'll describe what his ministry is not. Then next week, in verses 7 through 12, he will focus on affirming what his ministry truly is. And so this morning, let's turn to chapter 2 and read the first six verses. So Paul says through the Holy Spirit here, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So Paul writes this particular paragraph, this sentence, really, for two reasons. To offer an explanation and a defense of his own ministry, and also to provide an example of what a true Christian minister is supposed to be. 
or is not supposed to be. And so he gives these negative terms here, what we are not. Next week we'll see what he actually is. So you have to come back next week to hear the full explanation from Paul. And Paul's writing this to not benefit himself, but to benefit the church and to benefit us. Paul's never concerned about himself, and we'll see why in a few moments. He's always concerned about other people. When Paul visits Thessalonica, he's only there for three to four weeks. And he he literally has to leave in the middle of the night because a mob is out to get him. He has to leave so quickly that the church wakes up one morning and Paul's disappeared. And they're thinking, whoa, where'd Paul go? What's he doing? Is his message really true? Does he really care about us? Why did he leave? He must be like these false teachers over here who just come in for a moment, fleece everybody of their things, and then disappear. And so when Paul disappears and flees to Berea because he's afraid for his life, other people have started to come in now to undermine Paul, to undermine his teaching and his character. So Paul's one, writing to set the record straight and to remind the Thessalonians what true Christian ministry looks like. And he says, this is something you already know. You've seen it. Believe it. Don't be deceived. He does this in part because he knows that the reception of the message, in this case the gospel, is always tied to the messenger. And so if a teacher comes in and starts espousing some new form of philosophy or teaching, the way he lives his life has to connect to what he is saying. And so if the messenger is discounted and proven false, then the message will probably be so as well. And so Paul is writing to set this record straight to provide evidence of how a true Christian minister works and what the message he carries really is. And so we see what this text means for the Thessalonians, but what does it mean for us? Well, I think it serves two purposes. We have to look at these at both levels as we move through today. First, he's telling us what do we look for in Christian leaders, in church leaders. So what are the people who are leading the church? What are they supposed to be? What are they supposed to be doing? Then secondly, Paul is describing what all Christians should be, how all Christians should minister, how all Christians could serve. And we know that because the first word in chapter 2 is for. Chapter divisions don't happen in Paul's letter. Paul is connecting this paragraph with the previous paragraph because in uh, chapter 1, verse 6, he says that you Thessalonians, you Lookout Valley, are to imitate us as we imitate the Lord. So everything in chapter 2 rolls from chapter 1, and so Paul is saying that everything I'm describing here should be present in all of your lives. Every Christian should be like this. So what's Paul communicating to us? And so, yes, we will look and try to judge the Christian and church leaders, but we have to also look at ourselves when we read this paragraph. And so how should we serve and minister to others? And we're going to look at two main areas. First, we're going to look at the compelling motivation that fueled Paul's ministry. And then second, we'll look at the guiding methods that directed that ministry. So the motivation and the methods. So first, the motivation. What was Paul's ambition to be a minister, an apostle for God? What motivated him to this task? And why did he keep going after so much suffering and toil? We see right from the get-go, he says that we suffered, we were shamed in much conflict in Philippi. Right before we got to you, what kept Paul going? And if you read this paragraph, it seems like Paul's just promoting himself. Everything he does is defense of himself. If you read a lot of the First and Second Corinthians, Paul does the same thing. Well, is Paul all about himself? 
Is he like one of these life coaches who tries to find the power within himself and to find these internal motivations and these goals? Well, if we read this text carefully, we see Paul talks about himself a lot, but in these six verses, he will mention God five times and Christ once. If you read the whole 16 verses of chapter 2, he mentions God and Christ 14 times. So who's the primary focus here? It's not Paul. It's God himself. And we'll see Paul's motivation to live and minister is not found somewhere within himself. It's found in God. And so Paul's motivation, first of all, stems from his approval by God. Paul saw himself as approved by God. We see that in verse 4 explicitly. Just as we have been approved by God, and at the end of that verse, God who tests our hearts. The word translated approved and test is the same Greek word. It has the, same, it has the meaning as one who's been tested or examined and found fit or satisfactory. It's like passing the big exam and getting your license. It's a lawyer passing the bar to be able to practice law. It's a doctor passing his board so he can practice medicine. It's being credentialed. It's being sent out. It's being given the thumbs up. You've been approved and endorsed. And Paul says that we have been approved by God, past tense, and God tests our hearts, present tense. So God's approval in the past, when Paul began his ministry, continues to this day. So Paul is endorsed and sent out by God himself. Paul doesn't wake up one day and says, hey, I think I'll be an apostle and minister of the gospel of Christ. We know Paul's story. That's not how it worked. God meets Paul on the road and blinds him and knocks him off his high horse and says, Paul, stop persecuting me and start preaching the gospel. So Paul is saying that he's been commended and commissioned by God himself for a certain task. He's given permission and support from God. None of this comes from his own soul. Paul doesn't take up this journey on his own. God calls him out. He's not trying to do good in order to seek God's favor because he already has God's favor. He's not lobbying others for their approval because he doesn't need it. He's not trying to find his identity or self-worth in teaching or acceptance from others. He founds that by being grounded in Christ. And so Paul is saying that I have been approved by God and that frees me to serve. It motivates me. It gives me great boldness and eagerness to keep going because God has appointed examined and approved me and given me the hope to go out, secondly, with a task. That Paul has been approved by God, but he's also been assigned a task by God. The end of verse 4 there, it says, we have been entrusted with the gospel. Paul and Silas were commissioned and trusted to carry God's mission to a waiting and watching world. They knew that they were only stewards of this message, not the originators of it. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul will say that they're only ambassadors. They're not devising or delivering a message that they've come up with. And so many of the philosophers of that day would come up with these um, own teachings of, them, of their own making and try to bring that to the crowd and try to convince them that that were true. But Paul says, we're not coming up with this on our own. We've been entrusted. We've been given this message. We're only faithful servants of this king who's approved, commissioned, and assigned us this task to carry out the gospel. And so what is this good news? What is this gospel that Paul is carrying? It's not a message that, hey, buddy, you can do it. It's not the message of the life coach that I found yesterday. And he says this. 
if I can find it. Because it was, oh, he says, Beloved, it's time for you to evolve from fear to confidence, from anxiety to peace. Establishing a close, healthy relationship with yourself is foundational to getting everything else you want in life, from inaction to success. That's the good news of the life coach. That's the good news of the philosopher. But the good news of Paul doesn't start there. It starts with God himself. And so we see this in uh, miniature right before this. In verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, he says, The people know how you turn from God, or turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So Paul is saying this good news doesn't start with you. It starts with the one true and living God. All other gods, including yourself, they're false idols. They're false gods. And in our natural state, you don't have the potential within yourself. With the potential within yourself is the grave. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You've abandoned God to serve idols. And because of this rebellion, the wrath of God is coming on you. God must punish sin. That's the bad news. But God has good news. Paul says that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come through his life, death, and resurrection. This is the hope of the gospel. Deliverance from the wrath is only found in Jesus, the Son of God, who lived, died to offer forgiveness for sins, to avert the wrath of God and give you justification. And this Jesus who ascended to heaven will come back again to set all things right. This is the gospel in miniature in verses 9 and 10. This is the good news that Paul has been entrusted to carry. This is what we have the task and calling to go do as well. And Paul also knows that he has the potential and the assignment to go urge and plead and appeal and reason for others to do the same, to repent and believe in God. And that's still the call on you, if you are not a Christian, to turn to Christ, to serve Him, to repent of your self-seeking, to repent of your idol worship, and to trust in Christ and wait on Him. That is the call. This is the assignment that Paul and every Christian has been given. Because we've been approved by God, we're assigned this task. Our aim should always be to please God. This is the third motivation for Paul, that his aim, his purpose, was to please God. Verse 4 again, So we speak not to please man, but to please God. And so the philosophers and teachers of their day and our day were only concerned about pleasing other people, mainly because people were the source of their monetary income. People, if they didn't buy their books, they didn't eat. If people didn't come and sit for $200 to $300 an hour, they don't get to be clothed. If people don't promote their brand, they're not going to become famous. So these philosophers, these false teachers, would look for a group of people to support them. They would do that by luring people in with these slick gimmicks, these cool words, these palatable teachings to make, oh, you're pretty, you're beautiful, you're great. You can go from success So if the crowd liked what the teacher would say, they got money and fame and fortune. If they turn the crowd away, the crowd walks away, and the philosophers left destitute. Because they're trying to aim, their aim, their purpose was to please others. Paul says, I don't care what you think, because I only care what God thinks. My aim is to please God above all else. It's a marked contrast. Paul doesn't fear men or seek their applause. He fears and relies on the approval of God alone. 
which he already knows he has. Martin Luther put it this way. He says, the, the essence of the Christian life is to live quorum Deo, before the face of God. It's like, I'm not going to go along with this crowd because I'm afraid of disappointing my parents. And so Paul will say this in chapter 4, verse 1, to the church and to us. He says, We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So every one of us is called not to go along with the crowd to please other people, to fear other people. We are to fear, trust, and please God above all else. So our devotion and motivation in life and in ministry is to please God alone. That means in the face of peer pressure, despite ridicule and insults, at the risk of disappointing other people, likely losing opportunities, status, or reputation, we please God because God has given us his approval and we don't need anybody else's. So Paul's motivation here ends in him being armed with boldness. He's approved by God, he's sent out by God, he's pleasing God, and he's armed with boldness. In verse 2, Paul will allude to his suffering and shame he experienced at Philippi. And you can read that story back in Acts chapter 16. So before getting to Thessalonica, Paul and Silas have been in Philippi, another Roman city, and they are greatly annoyed by this demon who they exercise from a slave girl. And this act results in this riotous mob going after Paul and Silas, capturing them, bringing them to the authorities, who then strip them naked, beat them with rods, throw them into prison, and then put their feet in the stocks. When Paul says we've been shamed and, and suffered, Paul's being very light here. Then I like how he says, oh, we were in much conflict. This persecution doesn't deter Paul and Silas. He says, no, we were emboldened to preach to you more. The word for boldness here alludes to speaking the whole truth without reservation, standing up and declaring the unvarnished truth with courage and conviction. In Paul's case, exercising a demon at the expense of exciting a mob. So he doesn't back down because they understood that the word that they spoke was not their own word. It was the word of God not something that they had developed and disseminated. And we'll see more of this at the end of chapter 3, but Paul will rest his commission on the approval of God and the word of God. And his motivation is to go out and to preach and to proclaim with boldness because he knows his identity is in Christ. All ministry is being done for Christ. All rewards will be given by Christ, and everything can be endured through Christ. He can stand with boldness and to proclaim the truth and to please God in little or much conflict, in plenty and in want. In church, we must live with these motivations as well. God has called and approved you and us, commissioned us to do the same thing, to carry the word of God to a hostile world so they may be turned from idols, turned to the living God. So our motivation to minister and to serve is not to please others, to make much of ourselves, but to please God. Not to speak so others will see how cool we are, and not to back down when things get hard. We live with a godly focus and a holy boldness. We live with godly focus and holy boldness because your position in Christ and your commission from Christ spurs us on to work and to serve others. 
So we see, first of all, the motivations that Paul gives. How is he compelled to serve and minister? Then secondly, we will see the guiding methods that Paul used. So what does Paul do? We've seen the how. We're seeing the why and the what. Now we're going to look at the how. And it's interesting, throughout this chapter, he will mention, and you know. Uh, Verse uh, 5 of chapter 1. We see it here in our text in verses 1, 2, 5. You'll see it again in chapter 9, or verse 9, verse 10, verse 11. He says, you know, you remember, you've seen us at work. And this is emphatic in the text here. Paul is writing to remind them of things that you've already been taught, church. You've already seen us. Again and again, Paul connects the message with the messenger. The gospel is an embodied message. Like last week, we saw that the gospel must be spoken clearly with words. But the actions and behaviors of the messenger must adorn the doctrine that they teach. And so the gospel must be taught by somebody. And that somebody must exemplify that gospel. So it's like this. It says, I'm not ever going to go to a nutritionist whose office is decked out with Taco Bell and McDonald's wrappers. Unless they were a former Tennessee football player. Then they're on to something. And so, Fred, a couple of you got that. And so you're not going to go to a financial advisor who's in deep credit card debt. You're not going to go to a maid and ask her to clean your house who can't keep her own kitchen clean. And so the messenger has to bring about a life that influences the message. So how does Paul behave? Paul is reminding them, says, you've already seen who we are. There's nothing to hide here. Everything that we are and we were and we did has been laid out before you. You've seen us and you know us. Can that be said about you? Can that be said about me? Do we have something to hide? Are we putting on a show? Are we attempting to cover up things? Paul says, I didn't cover up anything. I've laid it all out before you. So how does Paul behave? Let's look at four methods he uses. First, Paul spoke with reasonable appeal. And so we are to speak with reasonable appeal. So I use those two words deliberately because they're found in our text. The first one is an appeal, verse 3, for our appeal. And the reasonableness of this appeal is found in Acts chapter 17 when Paul was actually in Thessalonica. Look at chapter 17, verse 2 and 3 of Acts. So we have that on the screen. There we go. So on, this, on three Sabbath days, for three weeks, Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So three words stand out in this passage. When Paul was standing up before the people in the synagogue, he says he's reasoned, he explained, and he proved. And so when he talks about reasoning, he's dialoguing, he's answering and exchanging questions. He's preaching, but he's talking to people. Because the gospel is intelligent, logical, and understandable. So he reasons with them. It makes sense because it is true. It can stand on its own. So when we speak reasonable to people, stay calm. Don't get out of sorts. Have a conversation. Ask questions and listen. Be fair. Be sensible. Don't be extreme or excessive. We appeal to reason and sound thinking because the gospel makes sense when God reveals it to us. So we speak with reason. Paul dialogued and talked to people for weeks in Thessalonica. And secondly, he explains. He opens the Bible and simply 
and systematically goes through Scripture proving that God, or the Christ, is the Son of God. And so for us to explain means just saying, well, the Bible says so, so I believe it. No, it's to, to remember that people often don't have a church or a Christian background. So you've got to slow down and say, this is what we believe, and this is why we believe it. Explain with simplicity. Don't use fancy words. Have a conversation. Listen to them and meet them where they're at, and then bring them to the gospel. This is what Paul is doing. He's explaining things, and he proves them. <clears throat> he gives evidence. He places and sets before them the evidence from the Old Testament. This is who Christ is. Believe it. And so this is a respectful and dignified. He gives, them peop- he gives the people time to think, to process, and to move on. Sometimes we think, ah, if I can just lob these doctrinal grenades at people, they're just going to be blown into the, into the kingdom. Or Martin Luther had a quote that says, Preacher, you need to stand up and beat the gospel into your crowd. And sometimes with Martin Luther, he really meant like, beat them. You know, we come up in Bible thumping. It's not that way. Paul is proving. He's not cramming it down their throats. He's giving them time to process and think. So consider and contrast to this the many Christians you see on TV. Or, like, you remember the days when you could actually go to sporting events, like out in public? And so there's a guy always at the bottom of the escalator at the lookouts game, kind of mumbling and preaching and screaming. This is directly opposite what Paul is doing. He's sitting down with people and listening to them. And so most of us won't stand up in front of a crowd to proclaim the gospel, but we can sit over a cup of coffee or a meal or sitting at the park or watching your kid's ball game and do these things. We reason, we explain, we prove. We meet them where they're at and we appeal to the mind and the intellect because the gospel makes sense. But it doesn't stop with the mind. Paul says, I appeal to you. So contrast to the mind, Paul also focuses on the emotions, the heart, So it's not just an intellectual exercise, but he appeals to them by the way he acts. He's saying, I know this to be true, and I'm going to live it out. And the way I live this out will be appealing to you. So how do we today make Christianity reasonable and appealing to others? So just a few quick things. So first, we must become thinking and intelligent believers because we live in a time where there is just... I see we are awash in these philosophies and these teachings. Some are called Christian, some are deliberately not. But we've got to learn to cut down these falsehoods, to know what you believe and why you believe it. We have to become thinking Christians, to reason. But also, we've got to take time to slow down, to have conversations, to not see people as enemies, but to see them as people created in the image of God who are estranged from God. So take time to listen. Speak from your heart. Speak with feeling and emotion. And then live what you believe. Adorn the gospel with your life. And that means how we comment on Facebook. That's how we work. That's how we treat our children. We care for other people. We don't treat them as a project. We love them. But we speak with boldness and with kindness. So we reason and we appeal. We plead with people. And we do all of this because, secondly, we stand on certain truth. Paul says in verse 3 that our appeal does not spring from error. Error. The meaning here, what we proclaimed is true. It corresponds with reality. Paul didn't make this up. 
They didn't find it in a cave somewhere. God gave it to them. And the Christian faith is intelligent. It's reasonable because it is historical. Things happened in history. Jesus came, lived, died, and was resurrection in space and time. We think, oh, it's just a fairy tale. But Paul says if it didn't happen, then we're the worst off people. We have no hope. We're the most to be pitied. And Paul's saying that, no, we know that this happened. We've seen it with our eyes. We felt it in our soul. We know it to be true. This is not a burning in our bosom. This is not some good feeling. The church is an embodied faith. It's not just like this private, get me, get me to heaven type of thing. It happened in the real world. It's not just a value choice. It's objectionable, objective and verifiable truth. Because would you follow and believe something that you knew to be false? Christianity, as Francis Schaeffer says, is true truth. We stand on certain truth because it encompasses everything in this life. Because nothing is left outside of its domain. Nothing is outside of its influence. Because God, who made, sustains, and consummates all things, encompasses all things. And so we stand on a certain truth because this is the word of God. And it cannot fail because God cannot fail. Because God has declared it to be true. Because God himself is true. We stand and declare the true word, standing and making a reasonable appeal to others. Because if we are faithful to this message, we will always find ourselves on the right side of history. Truth does not change. And because of this, we see thirdly his method, share without deceitful motivation. I see this in a couple places. Verse 3, for our appeal does not spring from impurity or any attempt to deceive. Paul's motives were genuine. The word in verse 3 for impurity literally means filth or refuse. There's nothing in Paul to sully or disregard his ministry. Everything he did flows from a pure intention so that others would come to know and be found in Christ. He never stoops to tricks. He doesn't try to trick or deceive people. There's no bait and switch in his presentation. Hey, if you come to this thing and, and, and do these uh, cool events and see all this laser light show, then you can become cool if you give your life to Jesus. Paul's not like that. He lives the gospel out and he teaches the full truth about Jesus. Nothing is impure. Nothing is out of bounds. Nothing is trickery. Nothing is out to con or manipulate people. There's no gimmicks that Paul uses. And we see this later in verse 5. It says, we never came with words of flattery. The word flattery here is only found here in the New Testament. So Paul's using this specific word for a reason. And the word he has in mind is this tailoring of a message to fit popular opinion. It's the tailoring of a message to fit popular opinion. So how many times have we seen that in the past few years? From politicians, from Christian teachers, from others? Because the gospel at times is not palatable for many people. Because the gospel says... Yes, there is good news, but first, there's bad news. The bad news is, you're all sinners, and you can't save yourself. The gospel confronts us with the notion that we are not autonomous, we can't construct our own reality, and we are not God. And people do not like that. Paul doesn't back down from telling others the truth of God's coming wrath, the demands of discipleship, or the need for repentance and the abandonment of self. He doesn't tell his listeners how smart or beautiful or talented they are. 
He reminds them that if they are not found in Christ, they are dead and under his wrath. This is not a message that's going to build a crowd. Paul in the first century to Timothy explains our day as well. He says this to Timothy, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. There are many people who want to accumulate teachers who tell them exactly what they want to hear. So the warning for us is to beware Christian teachers who seem, ah, Christianity, Jesus is here to make your best life now. Who shy away from telling you the demands of dying to yourself. Who ask you to sow your financial seed to gain uh, a harvest of reward. Those who seek to entertain us with fun, games, and laser light show, but never warn of the judgment of God. Beware of those who only want, make, want to make you feel better about yourself rather than confront you about your sin so it can be truly forgiven and taken away. Paul's example here instructs us to live a life of purity, pleasing God above all, to speak the truth in love, and to not result to some gimmick or trickery or bait and switch. So Paul's method here is always to speak with honesty and sincerity. And lastly, Paul's method here is to serve without personal gain. Verse 5 and 6 says, I did not come with a pretext for greed, nor did we seek to seek glory from others. Simply, Paul was not in it for the money. I like how the NIV transliterates this. He says, we didn't put on a mask for greed. We didn't come up with a costume trying to lure people in just so we could make dollars. Paul also says, it wasn't in it for the fame. I'm not here for the claim or praise of others. We can see this in uh, the last part of Verse 6, he says, we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Basically, Paul says, hey, we could have charged for our services, but Silas and all, we chose not to place any burden. We didn't want a demand on you because we wanted to support ourselves, to show you that we're not in it for money or recognition or to see the praise and honor from you. We know it's all from God because God has given us approval. We don't need it from another. If we are relying on God's reward, we don't need to grab money on this earth. So Paul says, I'm not in it for myself. I'm not seeking to, to trick or deceive to make myself look better. And it's easy for us to fall into the trap for our own ministry, for our own service, for our own good, to make ourselves look better, to make sure that we're serving the poor so I can put it on Instagram, so I can uh, somehow seek a fortune. If I can just get the right celebrity to endorse my book, or if I can just get the right people on my team, then we will look cool and suave and make everybody just love us. If we go after the things on the earth, we have our reward. Do not settle for the miniature rewards of this life by resulting to smaller gospels, to smaller gods, but to faithfully serve and please Him alone. So we've seen the methods of how Paul worked in his ministry and his service to others. We speak with reason, we appeal to the mind. We live with pure God-honoring lives. We don't deceive, manipulate. And all of this results in a revolutionary ministry. Because what Paul does is upside down. It's counterintuitive. Paul comes in weakness, in shame, and in suffering. He's beaten. He has to flee at night. But Paul says in verse 1, For you remember, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. When Paul says it's not in vain, he says it's not worthless, it's not ineffective, it's not a failure. 
It looks like Paul was only there for three weeks and then he disappears. But the work continues because it's not Paul's work, it's God's work. What looks like failure actually is a victory. Life has changed. The world is actually turned upside down. So at a personal and corporate level, God is at work in unprecedented ways to bring about everything God has planned to take place. God is saving people and overturning worldly systems and kingdoms. We know that because in verse 9 we've seen how you Thessalonians, how you lookout valiants have turned from God or turned to God from idols and to serve the living and true God. Sometimes we think that you well, just becoming Christian is like changing our brand of toothpaste, changing our brand of clothing. No, it's a complete overhaul of life in all its priorities, all its goals, all its values, all its understanding of the world. Everything in their lives is upside down. And not just in their personal lives, but the charge that was lobbed against Paul and Silas and others, he says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here. So the gospel is turning not just lives over, but the whole world. And there is hope for ministry that will bear fruit in personal lives and in corporate lives. It may not look like much now, but God is at work. So your ministry, your service, if that's at home with your children, if it's here in the church, if it's at your workplace, it's in your neighborhood, take heart. It is not in vain. God is at work. So don't try and shortcut the work by substituting the gospel some gimmick, some trick, or deception to kind of help God along. It's really easy, especially for church leaders, to fall into the traps and say, well, if we just give away a big enough TV, hey, if we can drop a Buick from a helicopter, people will come. And if they come, we can share the gospel with them. We don't come to the world trying to overthrow it with our, our, our smarts or our intelligence. We don't come and try to shake up the world with pitchforks and Viking helmets. No, we have patience that the word of God, the ordinary means of grace, will do its work and result in something unprecedented. The world will be turned upside down because God is at work. And have hope also that God uses unexpected means. Because Paul uses Silas and Paul who have been shamed, beaten, and just got out of jail. He uses these two men and others to turn the world upside down. Those who look weak, those who have nothing to offer. If God can use them, God can use us. God will use the most unexpected means and the most unexpected people to accomplish his goal. Because it's not about us. It's about God himself. So take heart that God will and can use you in your ministry. So we find that motivation to go out and to serve and to share because God has approved us and commissioned us. We are seeking to please him and not others because everything he has given to us is enough. So speak reasonably. Speak from your heart and live righteously and trust that God will bring change as we preach and proclaim the gospel. God is at work slowly, often imperceptibly, but God is surely at work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we contemplate this example of Paul, what it often looks incredulous or confusing that you would use these methods and these men to turn the world upside down. But Lord, we thank you and praise you that it's not something that they developed or came up with that we're talking about thousands of years later, but Lord, we 
know that this is your word, and we stand on that certain truth. And Lord, I pray that you would give us hope and encouragement this morning, that we would be motivated to serve you above all else, and that we would be encouraged that your gospel is going forth from our individual lives and our corporate lives, that we would be a church who aims to please you, who lives holy and righteous lives, to appeal and adorn the gospel. May you do your work in your time. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Stand and sing this.